A bill passed in 2019 by the Indian Parliament criminalized a civil matter. Pronouncing triple talaq was now punishable. Under the Muslim Women Protection of Rights on Marriage Bill, divorcing through instant triple talaq will be illegal, void, and could attract a jail term of three years for the husband. Under the proposed law, a Muslim woman against whom talaq has been declared, she is entitled to seek subsistence allowance from her husband for herself and also for her dependent children. A Muslim woman against whom triple talaq is uttered is entitled to also seek custody of her minor children. The government hailed this passage of the bill of triple talaq as a step which would help correct a historic wrong done to Muslim women. And all of this while the opposition and the Congress party questioned the relevance of criminalizing a civil matter. To contextualize the contemporary issue, one needs to look at how we arrived at having a separate personal law for the Muslims themselves and for the different communities uh, across India. So let us dive in into understanding the origins of Muslim personal law in India and its journey during the era of colonization. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of India Colonized. I'm your host Omar Haq. And today we have with us Shahina Khalil joining us as a co-host for this episode. Hey Shahina. Hey Omar, thank you for having me. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Today we'll be exploring how the Anglo-Mohammedan law evolved into what we know as the Muslim personal law today. How it originated to how it is of relevance in the 21st century. Right. So... Anglo-Mohammedan law is a mixture of English and Islamic laws, concepts, institution, and jurisprudence that developed in the British colonial India between the 18th and the 20th century. Although it is not an official designation, the term Anglo-Mohammedan law was came to be widely used as a term of convenience to distinguish the legal system from um, say, particularly the English law or the Islamic law, which were two separate, uh, which were identified as two separate laws. So this law was an early effort to enforce Islamic law and is of importance to scholars and practitioners who are interested in contemporary efforts to institutionalize both Islamic criminal and civil law. Yeah. Prior to the ascendancy of the English law in India, Mughal authorities ruled India in a decentralized way while governing through towns and cities and assuming responsibility for dispensing justice. The representatives of these towns and cities were subject to the laws which were established by the Mughal emperor, but they still followed the local laws, traditions and customs of the land. The outcome was that while municipalities uniformly regulated the law of the emperor, they also continued to have a sense of judicial power to pass and implement laws according to their own discretion, only within their territories. In 1601, English law was introduced in India by the British East India Company. That year, the British Crown granted the company legal authority over areas of which it had lease rights from the Mughals. So at this point, English law could only be applied to British subjects under the jurisdiction of the East India Company, although local citizens continued to be governed by the Mughal law. In 1661, King Charles II of Britain expanded the authoritative powers of the company to exercise power and command over its fortresses. 
this meant that the company how within its legitimate jurisdiction started to serve as the country's official rulers of the company's controlled areas in india now a landmark moment for the english law in india came with the charter of 1726 which was issued by king george i also known as the judicial charter it extended administrative powers in madras bombay and calcutta and also established royal courts in these presidency towns on the administrative end each town was to have a governor and council responsible for writing the laws regulating the governance of the company and the individuals living within the principality in addition these towns now had a mayor and nine aldermen from the point of view of the law the charter established civil and criminal courts with privy council in england as the appellate court the civil court was managed by the mayor and the nine aldermen and the criminal court on the other hand was managed by the government and five council members the 1753 charter further extended the jurisdiction of the east india company so with the continuous progress of the company's influence and power over the territory the company was no longer solely concerned over trade but with the extension of its authority over other parts of india in order to attain further economic benefits with the british crown ready to delegate complete jurisdiction to the company it was not an issue of whether the company had the power and control rather that of how much power and control they desired well the decisive reaction to the extension of the company's authority came from the rise of warren hastings a long standing civil servant in india he was made governor general in 1772 he initiated that in order to optimize the value of the company's existence in india they needed to assert greater power on the local population and establish a more effective administrative body given that company officials at this point in time had negligible knowledge of local laws in the courtrooms they were highly dependent on who they referred to as native officers these were indians who occupied legal positions before the company's arrival many of them were also islamic scholars in their own right true and initially hasting was mainly concerned with the administrative matters because he was responsible for the revenue collection as the nawab governor general but realizing that revenue collection was not sufficient and also inefficient he commissioned a committee to investigate the reasons of the inefficiency within the system the system of revenue collection in india so the conclusion of the committee was that uh the islamic legal courts were imprecise shoddy and lacked sense of clarity and, and the committee came out immensely critical of these islamic legal courts so the lack of a clear law and regulation translated into what was happening in the public making it nearly impossible for the east india company to generate any sort of revenue and this served as an opportunity for the company to exert maximum amount of power on local legislation the first step towards achieving this was to distinguish the jurisdiction from two forms of law uniform application of english law was to be administered in territories controlled solely by the company whereas the administration of islamic law now here on referred as mohammedan law was limited to and i quote all claims regarding inheritance succession marriage caste 
and other religious practices or institutions, unquote. And all of this just seemed to be very complicated. English until then had been completely ignorant of the mechanics of both Islamic and the Hindu law. And therefore the first challenge was to obtain a sense of understanding of the local law to set in motion the development of what would become to be known as the Anglo-Mohammedan law. Well, the development of the Anglo-Mohammedan law was by no means an unreflective mechanism of legal ingenuity. Drafters and the project proponents were fully cognizant of the challenge that lay ahead. Their primary job was to establish a body of legislation that seemed genuine and valid to their Muslim subjects, while being intelligible to British judges responsible for interpretation and implementation of the law. Now that is a task. In order to please their subjects, the English rulers tried to interpret texts of Islamic law that had already been recognized as authoritative within India. Furthermore, they also engaged with the help of Muslim jurists to clarify the broad workings of Islamic laws and understanding more of the complex doctrines. Despite their willingness to interact with authoritative Islamic legal sources, these documents, as Scott Kugel argued, fell within the con context of English law. This meant that the legal documents before them were understood to be exhaustive scripts, obscuring the distinguishing features between the systems of English and Islamic law. Now, before moving further into this point, it is important to illustrate the sources used by the drafters and depth of their interpretation of the Islamic law. The Anglo-Mohammedan law was a less formal code and more a given body of text that English judges had at their disposal in deciding matters of Islamic law. But these translated works were not concise and they were not something that was easy for them to understand, for the English judges to understand, which led for the insistence on establishing legal precedents. So eventually these legal precedents were used as references to revise the versions of the translations that came out. And any judgment that followed from hereafter were based on these legal precedents and was also used, and these legal precedents were also used to prepare any incoming prospective judges in order for them to be uh, able to get a hold of the Anglo-Mohammedan law, to pronounce judgments on Anglo-Mohammedan law. However, by underlining and using legal precedents, the English judges were going beyond simply supporting their judgments in the courtroom. They felt that they were bringing much needed consistency and predictability into the law, which they saw as a primary shortcoming of the Islamic law. Now, Hidayah, which was a seminal text, which was a commentary on Muslim laws written by Burhan al-Din and translated by Charles Hamilton, it, it was used as a reference text by English lawyers and judges while pronouncing judgments. One such British lawyer, William McNaughton, in reference to the Hidayah, states that it was of no value as a reference work to suggest a rule on some specific point that could be posed for a judicial decision. In response to what he saw was a shortcoming of the Hidayah, the text, he writes his own book, Principles and Precedents of the Mohammedan Law. 
This work was written on the basis of Al-Fatwa Al-Alamgiriya as well as the cases which were previously decided in India, the precedences. Half of the book is devoted to precedences that the judge should turn to and the other half is to the standard that all judges should be mindful of outside a particular situation. While the book never eclipsed the other texts of Anglo-Mohammedan law, McNaughton's principle and precedence was a powerful teaching medium that showed to the degree to which the British had brought a sense of codification and legislation and works of precedence within the working of the Islamic law. Or in other words, they had now been able to mimic a structure and mirror the common law system back in England. True. Moving towards a structure like this was facilitated as soon as the British crown assumed official power over parts of India after the Great Rebellion in 1857. As one of the legislative reforms they enacted, the British adopted the Indian Law Reports Act of 1875, which mandated the publishing of main rulings of each high court in court-specific compilations known as the Indian Law Reports, later abbreviated as ILR. So now, cases viewed as setting long-standing precedents have been published in their entirety. The motivation behind these publications was part of the broader coding and standardization movement, which included the development of legal codes, the formation of a precedent-based judicial model, and the displacement and limitation of Islamic law on postal issues, such as inheritance, marriage, divorce, and succession. Right, and the ultimate goal was not only to establish a more predictable and functional legal system, but one that would promote British government by withdrawing Islamic law from legislative frameworks on all but a few topics. So let us try and understand how Anglo-Mohammedan law evolved into the 1937 Act of Muslim Personal Law, which was eventually retained even after independence. In 1937, the various enactments governing the implementation of Anglo-Mohammedan law to Muslims in various states of India was replaced by a single act, which came to be known as the Muslim Personal Law Act, or the Shariat Act, passed by the central legislature. The objective of this act, as specified by the act itself, was to make provisions for the application of Muslim personal law to Muslims across India. And the passage of this act was a constitutional acknowledgement of the Muslim status and the personal law that would be applied to Muslims henceforth. Thus, the Anglo-Mohammedan law seemed to be considerably different from that of the Sharia. And more so, it can be considered as an autonomous system in itself, a hybrid law, if you must say, which is quite important to be acknowledged. This was influenced by the ideas of the English law and the laws borrowed from a variety of foreign judicial structures, or in other words, the transformation of Sharia so as to carry that about in the accordance with the values of colonial rules. In conclusion, from a diachronic point of view, the major consequences of the English law on Muslim law in India is still a phase in progress, and its work and its most ambitious outcome, that is a standardized legal framework, is still incomplete. The mechanism of subliminal uniformity involves the legal and judicial formats. 
this practice impacts in particular the Muslim minority despite their number, for they fear that a hypothetical uniform civil code would codify the extension of a part of their identity. And that is why these peculiarities of the Indian legal system cannot be ignored. If an accurate comprehensive legal study of the Anglo-Mormon law and its historical development is to be carried out.